wasn't me. Just kidding. Okay, it is me. <laughs> Josh, I might be the speaker there. <clears throat> I think it's good. Yeah. That's really good news to hear. Praise God that a soul has been redeemed. It's, it's, it's great news in dark times. You know, it seems that as every year passes, the world just gets darker and darker. You know, we're not plagued by wars and, and riots. We're plagued by disease. If we're, we aren't plagued by that, we're plagued by acts of terror. Just this month, there was a mass shooting in, in a Baptist church in Texas. 26 people were gunned down, including children. And just day before yesterday, there was a mass shooting in a mosque in Egypt. 305 people gunned down. 305 people gunned down. Now, outside of this, you know, everyone I talk to these days, um, it seems that there's a, there's a level of stress. Everyone's stressed out. There's an alarming growth of this going on. The stats say that almost 60% of people are stressed out, and 60% lead to human illness and disease. And in any given year, one in five Canadians experience a mental health or addiction problem. One in five in any given year. And by the time Canadians reach 40 years of age, one in two, one in two have or have had a mental illness. See, we live in a broken world, and that's the truth of it. And the portion of Scripture that I want us to look into today is going to deal with the root of all of this darkness and brokenness, but more importantly, pointing us to the solution of all of this, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. So the portion, as mentioned, is Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. Now Luke, as he pens down this gospel, his aim is to give an orderly account of the most significant event in history. Now this supreme historic event is the one that divides our very calendar from B.C., which is before Christ, to A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, meaning after Christ's coming. And the context of what is happening during this event is that it happens in Israel. And we need to know what's going on in Israel. Israel is under siege. It's governed by Rome at this point. They're subjugated. They're oppressed. They don't have the freedom that they have as an independent nation. And the last time that God had spoken to Israel through his prophets has been 400 years it's been 400 years ago. That's like 16, 17 generations. Currently, right now in my family, there are four generations that are alive. But 400 years, it's 16 to 17 generations, and God hasn't spoken to Israel through the prophets. The last time was in the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. 
And now when Luke pens this event, he wants to give us a, a picture of the birth of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the death, the resurrection of Christ. But he goes a step further. He says, I want to start before that, which is the prophecies of Christ's coming. And he starts his letter by penning these two individuals, which is Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah was a priest in the temple. And the scripture here states that he was, he was a righteous man. He did every command. He followed every of God's order. And the angel Gabriel comes before him and proclaims this truth. He announces that his wife Elizabeth will conceive and bear a son and that they should name him John. But here's the interesting thing. That this John is going to be one who comes in the spirit of Elijah and the power of Elijah. Now, if you read Malachi chapter 4, verses 5, which is the last two verses, this is what it says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That was the last phrase, and now you have Zechariah, a priest, being approached by Gabriel, saying that you're going to have a son. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he shall prepare the ways of the Lord who is to come. Now, the one thing we observe here is that Zechariah is speechless. I mean, in essence, what's happening here is he doesn't believe that he's going to have a child. Why? Because he's so old. He is advanced in his ages, and so is his wife. He's like, how is it possible? You see, despite the fact that he was a righteous man, he did his commandments, he followed God's commandments, and followed everything that God had asked, when it came to this point, he said, is it possible? Is it possible? There was a lack of faith. And what happens? He was literally made speechless. His mouth was closed. Though a godly man, he lacked the faith. And for nine months, there was silence. As his wife had carried his child. And when John was born, there was a conversation that was happening between the people. I said, what do we name him? And Elizabeth says, John. And Zechariah say, and they look at Zechariah and say, that name doesn't even belong in the family line. John, and he's like, he writes, John it is. The moment that happens, his tongue is loose, his mouth is open. The moment he has exercised faith that, yes, Gabriel had proclaimed that my son will be born and he will be, his name is to be John, and he has therefore stated such, his mouth is loosed, his tongue is loosed, and he can speak. And here is the beautiful, beautiful blessing that comes out. They call it the Benedictus, which is blessed be the Lord of God of Israel. The hymn, the prophecy, and this is what he says. And if you don't mind, if you can all rise as I read this. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to verse 79. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him with our fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your precious, beautiful words that you have preserved, O Lord, for us, that we, your people, can come before it, marvel and praise you and give you thanks for your kindness. Father, we pray that your word and your word alone remains in the hearts of all those who are here today, and anything else, O Lord, would be snatched away. Father, we pray for attention and for hearts ready to hear, thus saith the Lord. For we pray this in Jesus Christ's precious and holy name. You know, Zechariah starts off. He starts off with, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, one would think, okay, nine months, you're old in age, you didn't think you were having, going to have a child, now you have a child that, hey, God, thank you for giving me a son. No, but that's not what he says. He praises God for this one truth, that God has visited and redeemed his people. And here's a key part of this observation. John has just been born. Jesus is a week or two to, uh, uh, a week or two from being born. And he says, you have redeemed us. A past tense. And this is what John Piper had penned down. Nine months earlier, Zechariah could not believe his wife would have a child. Now filled with the Holy Spirit, he is so confident of God's redeeming work in the coming Messiah that he puts it in the past tense. For the mind of faith a promised act of God is as good as done. Zechariah has learned to take God at his word and so has a remarkable assurance God has visited and redeemed. God has visited and redeemed. See, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And what does it say in Hebrews 11 verse 6? And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You have to approach God in faith. And Zechariah speaks here of things that are to come in his prophecy. He knows that this child, this John, is the messenger who prepares the way of the Lord who is Jesus to come. So the point one I want us to go away with is this. No matter how many years have transpired, 
4,000, 2,000, 400 years, our God is a covenant-keeping God. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. Every promise, every covenant, every oath, every blessing, every curse, every consequence, our God keeps His word. That's the testimony of Scripture since the beginning to this very day and what is to come. Over and over again, our God has kept His word. And I think it is very important for us to, vitally important for us, to understand what His promises are. And the only way that's going to happen is if you get into His word. How can you know the promises, the the covenants, the consequences, if you don't even know His Word. You have to get into His Word and understand our God is a covenant-keeping God. Psalm 105, verse 8 to 11 says this, He has remembered His covenant forever. The Word which He commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which He had made with Abraham and His oath to Isaac. Then He confirmed it to Jacob for a statue to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So Zechariah is now unraveling and understanding that God has has revealed himself. He has, in fact, visited us. And he's connecting this back to the prophecies, and he sings out. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He spoke about this from the the holy prophets from old. He brings about here, in memory, the Davidic covenant. He mentions the line of David. He mentions the Abrahamic covenant. So for those of us who remember the covenant to Abraham, that Abraham would be, they would have a nation, that there would be offspring that would come forth, and the nations around would be blessed by the offspring. There's they have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who God calls as Israel, from whom you have the 12 tribes, and from there you have David, and the covenant is made, and then the new covenant is made to the people of Israel, And there's a a blessing that they would have a kingdom and a king would be established. Now, I think it would be unfair for us at this moment, like when Zechariah is stating this prophecy, in his immediate context, being subjugated by the Romans, he, in his mind, is stating redemption is near. God is going to save us from our enemies, from those those who hate us. But the beauty of it is this, that the Holy Spirit has inspired him. And for those of us post the cross, all of this makes a richer sense. See, he covers something very important for us. That in verse 77, he says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This the most important thing that we need to remember is the salvation from our sins. But, you know, there's a, there's a saying that if you don't know if you need it, why would you care? Right? See, our, we need to understand what our greatest need is. We need to grasp and grapple who our greatest enemy is. Otherwise, anything about Jesus, about the Bible... It's just going to fly over our heads. See, I remember um, 
when my sister came to know the Lord, this was through VBS, she came home and she was, uh, she's saying, I'm saved. I'm like, saved from what? You know, like, you don't understand the, the context. You don't understand the need. And for me, being the younger brother, I dismissed it as the ravings of a mad woman. You see, as mentioned in the beginning, you look around you in the world and you see how broken it is. It is the Christian worldview that makes sense. The physical anguish, the mental ailments, the brokenness in families, the brokenness in relationships, they find their root in sin. We have to understand what the consequences of sin are. And the Bible says it's eternal death. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a part when, when you look even in a Christian's life, for one who has embraced the truth, sin is still so powerful. It still has as a, as a stronghold. Ever understand unbelievers or or people who believe what makes them do what they do? What causes frictions in relationships? What causes a mother to decide to kill her children, either born or unborn? What makes a tyrannical political leader decide to pursue the mass execution of a whole race of people? What makes people say and do the things that they do to disregard God's word? Sin. That's the answer. Romans 3.23, this is what it says. There's a deadly disease. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There's no excuse here. No one. In fact, 1 John 1 verse 8 say, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If anyone were to say, hey, I'm fine, I'm perfect, I have no sin, I don't know what you're talking about. God's standard is so high that God can declare all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, verses 23. See, sin is addictive and destructive and taints everything in life. Maybe you've heard of this uh, the saying, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Let me read that so you, so you remember this. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. See, sin has a way of progressing in our lives. You know, it's not common for someone to wake up one day and say, hey, you know, I want to go and commit murder. No. It is, it is usually preceded by many warnings. You know, you don't have a Christian, now let's jump to the Christian context, you know, wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to walk away from the faith. Usually it's a progression of sin that leads to that. Sin is addictive. It is destructive and taints everything in life. You know, there's a, um, there's National uh, Geographic reported that a 
foot Burmese python swallowed a six-foot alligator in Florida. So a python swallowing an alligator, it's true. Seen the pictures, it's crazy. The consequences were lethal. See, as the, as the gator, you know, as the snake ate the gator, the gator split the snake open from the inside out, literally. That's like what sin does to us. We think we have something great until it destroys us from the inside out. Why would the python eat something that is deadly? Could the snake not understand that the alligator was a deadly meal? Was it really worth it? Well, you can't ask the snake anymore. See, and there's a real and powerful enemy, and that's Satan. Now, I've heard that there's, there's some confusion about who the real enemy is. You know, a few state, hey, you can't blame Satan for everything. You know, take the blame yourself. Well, I'm going to tell you what Scripture says. You know, you have sin to deal with. But this is what 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Revelation 12, verses 10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. This is a future prophecy. But who's the accuser here? It's Satan. So don't, it's not that you have sin that you have to just deal with. You have Satan who tempts you, the father of lies who deceives you, causes you to sin, goes up and says, look at that saint. Look at that. Day and night. Day and night he accuses the saints. What does Ephesians 6 verse 12 say? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, He is the God of this world and blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. See, sin is the real disease here. And Satan, the awesome enemy, he is truly the enemy. Now, when you think about all those people, all the acts of violence committed, and 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 comes into mind that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of glory. Do you have compassion? When we, as brothers and sisters, have friction, is it the flesh and blood that we battle? Or do we, like Scripture has proclaimed, understand that there is a sin that taints us and there is a Satan? Oh, he, he can disguise himself as an angel of light, make things look so fine and dandy, but he's waiting for you to fall. See, we have a deadly disease and a terrible enemy and every one of us will die from this disease and be devoured by that enemy if there is no horn of salvation for us because that's what Zechariah prophesied. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, when you think about this, what comes in mind? Horn of salvation. Do you picture a trumpet? This is an Old Testament picture of strength and power. Think of an ox with a long, stout horn. It is one where it is a picture of power and strength, one that shatters, that destroys, that overpowers. That is the horn of salvation that God has raised. And when you look at it, you see in verse 77, it says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from high to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death. See, this is the exciting part of Christmas. Christmas is nothing without Christ. It is nothing without the horn of salvation. God has visited us and has redeemed us and has raised the horn of salvation. A powerful image here. Now picture the scene here. It echoes the imagery from Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 6 to 7. It says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, and I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Now this is talking about Jesus. A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Do you see this picture? You're blind. You are prisoners. You are seated. You're in a dungeon, shackled. You're seated. You're not trying to escape. You're given up. You're just sitting there in darkness. It symbolizes hopelessness. It's cold. There's no sight. And back in those days, there weren't lights everywhere. So when they think of darkness, what comes in? There's terror in the night. You have no idea what's out there. If there's a band of robbers, if there are wild animals, it's terror, it's fear. And that's the imagery used here. When it says, in darkness, aimless, and you're so acclimatized to the shadow of death, and darkness that you can't see past it. And then you have this picture of the day spring shall visit you from on high. You know, I was, uh, for those of you who might have watched uh, the movie The Lord of the Rings, there's a scene that comes in mind. Spoiler alert, but if you haven't watched it yet, your fault. Um, there's a scene uh, where there's a group of people they're defending themselves in a place called Helm's Deep. And there's a massive orc army, dark army. They want to destroy the guys who are behind the keep. It's a losing battle. And the last ones left say, hey, let's just go there, go out, and try our best. Go for glory. But there's an interesting thing that comes to mind as they're fighting this last ditched effort. 
there was one of their cohorts, one of their friends who had run away, or gone away actually saying this, look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. So picture this, you have a, a huge dark army, a few stragglers left fighting, fighting, fighting. The sun is rising and on the mountain there comes their friend dressed in white in a white horse. And then there's a horn that blows and they come riding down and behind him is thousands of horses, thousands of horses. And the army looks back up, up at the mountain and there's light that shines in their hind. They're blinded and it comes and wipes the army away. Powerful scene. That's what I get in my mind. But in scripture says, listen guys, you're not even fighting. <laughs> at, least, at least in the movie, these guys are fighting for their lives. Here, you're giving up. You're shackled. You're powerless. But the picture here is you sitting in darkness and Christ, the day spring from high, literally, the horn of salvation breaks your shackles, has given you the opportunity of freedom. Powerful imagery. Powerful. The day spring from on high has visited us. The time marked by the rising of the sun, that's the wonderful signal of the end of the night and provides relief from all of the side effects that come with the night. See, these two things make Christmas good news of great joy. You know, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 9.26 says, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Fear and guilt, the two great spoilers of life, have been taken away because Satan has been disarmed and sin has been forgiven. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 15 says, Christ took on a human nature that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. And through the same death, he paid the debt for our sins so that if we turn and follow him in faith, we are freed from all our guilt. You know, Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 23, paints for us a picture of God's heart and attitude. He says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. See, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people by raising up a horn of salvation for us. We didn't deserve it. Someone had uh, stood up and, and, and shared that thought. Did God really have to Redeem us. Well, I personally believe, and I think Scripture testifies that that's who he is. That's who he is. He would have done it again and again and again and again. He would have redeemed us. Because he cares. And here's the thing. What's the point of salvation? What is the point? Is it that, hey, we're free, we are no more in shackles, and we can live our life any way that we want? What does Zechariah say? Look at this. 
verse 73 onwards. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Immediate context. God's going to take the Romans away and I can do my priestly duties in the temple. Post the cross. We, as those who have embraced the gospel truth, can approach God and serve him. God has redeemed, has saved us to service. The end goal of our redemption, the fourth point, the end goal of our redemption is that we may serve him. That you may serve him for the rest of your lives without distraction, in holiness and righteousness. And the one thing about God that we see is when Zechariah says that God has visited us and he uses the same word visit as a visitation in the end of the prophecy with Jesus being the one that visits us. It paints for us another picture. That God is willing to do everything that he asks us to do. He doesn't ask us to do things that he himself hasn't done. Through Jesus Christ coming down here, the God who has served us calls us to be the ones who serve. The God who is the light calls us to be the light. The light that dawned from above is now the light shining through the church. The God who has forgiven much calls us to forgive much. The God who has loved much calls us to love much. The God who doesn't rejoice in the death of his enemies asks us to rejoice to us not to rejoice in the death of our enemies. The God who has shown humility calls us to show humility. The God who has sacrificed much calls us to sacrifice, sacrifice much. See, the end goal of our redemption is that we may serve him. And at any point in our life, when we think our purpose is outside of that, we will be disappointed. Hands down, without a doubt. Why? Because God has told us, and his word is true, to embrace it. Any service outside of service to God is going to disappoint you. Any relationship that you look for fulfillment, fulfillment that is not a relationship with God is going to leave you disappointed. Even within the community of faith, I've got to be honest. When you think about this, see, we search and we seek. We seek for someone, hey, who would save us. We seek for someone who would love us. We seek for someone who will take care of us. We seek for someone who we can trust. We seek someone who will never betray us, who will always have our best interests at heart, who wants us to rejoice, who can comfort us, who can build us up truly, who would give us wisdom, if you seek friendship, if you seek affirmation and love anywhere else, you will be disappointed. The God of the universe, the God of Israel, the creator of all things has declared, I have redeemed you 
And in redemption, there is a relationship restored. And in that relationship being restored, there is service. That is, that is our duty. That is our purpose. That is where we find fulfillment. And I, I pray that as we go forth in the weeks to come, as we enter this, this, this season of Christmas, that we are reminded, that we are reminded that at the end of the day, that our God Almighty has redeemed us to a calling of service. And if, if at any point that we don't appreciate our salvation, I think we've got to go back and reevaluate the consequences of sin. Father, we thank you, Lord God. We thank you for this beautiful description, this prophecy that declares that, oh Lord God, you have visited us and you have redeemed us. Father, we thank you that we are reminded of this powerful imagery of how incapable we were, shackled, seated in darkness, with fear, no hope, with Satan who pulls us around, but it doesn't end there. The day spring from on high has visited us. We thank you, O oh Lord God, that you have set us free, set us free from the fear of death, set us free from the power of Satan. And we thank you, O oh Lord God, that as we look into your word, we are challenged because you have redeemed us to a cause, to a purpose, which is to serve you. So we pray, Father, as this day passes by, the week comes on, that when we look at the world around us, that we would have eyes that you have opened up, eyes that would see a people who are lost, a people who are blinded, and that we would have hearts of compassion, that we would be the lights, just as you have been a light to us, that we would be the light to the world, and that just as John did, that we would point them to your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful reminder. And thank you for the challenge. For we pray this in Jesus Christ's precious and holy name.